Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio, back in the studio once again. So, as always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarada.com. Let's start tonight with a pretty unvarnished win. Construction of the Keystone XL pipeline is officially over. The decades-long fight against this frankly monstrosity has finally been won. TC Energy and the government of Alberta have officially ended their plan for the $8 billion pipeline, as expected because one of the first acts of the Biden administration was to pull the permits for the pipeline in America. Now, frankly, I was actually amazed that that happened. Um, You know, Longtime listeners will know that my uh, feelings on American uh, government is that none of it is nearly as revolutionary as it should be. Um, But I was actually really pleasantly surprised when that happened. So that was pretty excellent. We remain disappointed and frustrated with the circumstances surrounding the Keystone XL project, including the cancellation of the presidential permit for the pipeline's border crossing, said Jason Kenney, Alberta Premier. And of course, I can see why. Alberta took a $1.1 billion stake in the project and lent TC Energy another $4.7 billion for construction. And in fact, 150 kilometers of pipeline had already been constructed in the project, which hoped to transport bitumen from the tar sands located in northern Alberta to Gulf Coast refineries which of course would have meant extending the pipeline across the length of the country. And as we've seen time and time again, pipelines are an accident waiting to happen. And the longer the pipeline, the more potential disasters waiting to happen. Um, I can't think of it offhand, but I know that there was a couple of years ago a really bad um, pipeline spill that contaminated, you know, an entire watershed. And this happens on the regular. Um, and so pipelines like this are just, they are going to fail at some point. It's not a matter of if they will fail. It's a matter of when, where, and how much damage it will cause when it happens. Um, And so I think it's really, really, really good news. Unreservedly happy about this outcome. And so not only is the transport dangerous, but these kinds of ultra-heavy oil deposits are more carbon intensive than other forms of crude. So basically, bitumen is, they use it as asphalt. And you can imagine um, that something that can be used as asphalt, that's not anything like the kind of gas that you put into your car. Um, and so it's really, really hard to change those 
really carbon intensive oils into, um, or substances into usable oils. And, you know, I think it's quite clear, uh, to most, uh, people who are paying any sort of attention these days that we need to be weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels, not starting to extract them from the worst forms of crude deposits. The point is that if you're having to turn to tar sands, it's time to pivot away from fossil fuels and pivot towards renewables. And so not only has this pipeline been defeated, and this is not the only pipeline that's been defeated recently, environmentalists are currently fighting against the expansion of Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline, which also extends down from Canada, and are battling the Dakota Access Pipeline in court, and uh, also in person uh, there have been a lot of great direct actions on the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, much like the Keystone. So uh, shout out to activists who are uh, working towards making sure that that is not completed. And in fact, uh, on the legal side, a judge just ordered a further environmental review. So that's good news. Dominion and Duke Energy here in the States scrapped the $8 billion Atlantic Coast Pipeline just last year after litigation and delays made the construction no longer profitable. The fight to stop Keystone XL was never about one pipeline, says Kendall Mackey, campaign manager at 350.org. The termination of this zombie pipeline sets a precedent for President Biden and polluters to stop Line 3, Dakota Access, and all fossil fuel projects. Now, of course, I kind of feel like this is pretty much the least thing we can do to fight climate change, but it still represents a very large symbolic win, considering how intent on completing the project the previous administration was, and how incredibly committed they were to fossil fuels. And so we lost four years of uh, effort and uh, drawing down that we needed. And so every little bit helps at this point. And I think that it's so important to continue to pressure these companies to abandon these just environmentally disastrous projects and move towards renewables. There's plenty of money to be made in renewables. It's, it's the capitalist thing to do. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, capitalism is often tempered by uh, human emotion and human uh, stubbornness as well. Uh, let's talk about the opposite kind of story now, unfortunately. United Healthcare, the largest health insurer in the country, is threatening to deny claims for people who went to the ER if they deem that the reason for their visit was not a true emergency. Now, after backlash from pretty much everyone, they've walked back the rollout date to at least the end of the pandemic. Notice that they haven't said they're going to abandon the prop 
the uh, program. And in fact, Anthem, the second largest insurer, already tried this tactic and had to cancel it after intense backlash. Based on feedback from our provider partners and discussion with medical societies, we have decided to delay the implementation of our emergency department policy until at least the end of the National Public Health Emergency Period, a UHC representative told Ars Technica in an email. We will use this time to continue to educate consumers, customers, and providers on the new policy and help ensure that people visit an appropriate site of service for non-emergency care needs. Now, of course, this ignores a lot of factors, including the fact that in some places, emergency rooms may be the only place available to a patient. For instance, right here in the Valley, there are now several urgent care facilities, but just a few years ago, there were hardly any. And so that's here in the Valley where it's fairly well built up. And so if you're in a rural area, for instance, there may no, not be urgent care facilities. The emergency room might be the only place that you can go. Of course, one of the largest problems with this supposed cost-cutting measure, beyond just the absolute moral indignity of it, is the fact that doctors say such an assessment is impossible. A 2018 study published in the Journal of America of the American Medical Association's Open Network found that up to 90% of symptoms that would prompt a patient to go to the ER overlapped with non-urgent conditions. Think of a person who may be having a heart attack, but it turns out simply to be a bad bout of gas, heartburn, or a panic attack that didn't require an ER visit in retrospect. Should that person not have gone to the ER? They might indeed be having a heart attack, and if they go to an urgent care facility, may not have access to life-saving interventions. Maria Raven, Chief of Emergency Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, noted how problematic it is to retroactively evaluate emergency medical care. My colleagues and I examined whether a patient's symptoms at presentation to the ED could be labeled reliably as a non-emergency based on the discharge diagnosis, the diagnosis that Anthem is currently using to determine medical necessity, she wrote. We found it was impossible. A more recent public letter further condemned the idea. Richard Pollack, president of the American Hospital Association, wrote on June 8th, Patients are not medical experts and should not be expected to self-diagnose during what they believe is a medical emergency. Threatening patients with a financial pen penalty for making the wrong decision could have a chilling effect on seeking emergency care. And it turns out this might actually also potentially violate federal law, according to the American College of Emergency Physicians, who state... ASAP firmly believes that the new policy is in direct violation of the federal prudent layperson standard, which requires insurance companies to provide coverage of emergency care based on the presenting symptoms that brought the patient to the emergency department, not 
the final diagnosis. Now, United Healthcare again is pleading that this is all in service of bringing down healthcare costs. However, the company raked in record profits yet again this past quarter. The company made a profit of 6.6 billion dollars. That's billion with a B in the second quarter of 2020. And what's even worse, this might all be a shell game. The policy may very well be an empty threat meant to chill people without actually incurring the possibility of breaking any kind of federal regulations. Jonathan Coldstadt, an associate professor at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley, told the New York Times back in 2018 when Anthem was doing this sort of thing, You may get as much or more bang for your buck, frankly, by just telling people you're not going to pay, even if at the end of the day you do pay. And the other problem with this is that this is the kind of thing that sours people to medicine and it prevents them from seeking actual medical health and attention. Um, I think that one of the big things that I've always been trying to fight against is the idea that the profit-driven motives of insurance companies somehow spills into the actual medical procedures that modern medicine does. And so it's really, really important to remember that those are two entirely different things. And so Western medicine works. It works really well. It doesn't work 100%, but nothing does. Uh, There is unfortunately no way to survive to the end of time um, as much as we might like. However, What we know about modern medicine is absolutely the best that we can do right now. Sure, there's lots of things that we don't know about yet, but that's the same with all kinds of science. And when greedy insurance companies try and rake millions of dollars out of people, sick people, that's the kind of thing that drives people towards alternative medicine. And it's so, so frustrating because this is the kind of rhetoric that alternative medicine practitioners will push. They'll say, oh, look at these greedy corporations. They just want your money. They want to, you know, make you take pills and go and see doctors and get tests and all they really want to do is make money off of you. And that is true for an insurance company, but that is not almost certain, almost certainly it's not true of your actual doctor, of the doctors who are working in an ER, of the doctors who are working in cancer wards. They want to help you. They want to help you get better. And this kind of absolute, just vulture capitalism is wrong on so many levels. And it just, it just makes me so angry. So now that we're all angry, let's take it back down a notch and get some more good news under our belt. Trying to bookend this uh, bad story with some good stories. Hopefully 
uh, that is going to help us all feel a little bit better for the rest of the night. So NASA has announced that it will send not one, but two spacecraft to Venus. And just yesterday, the ESA announced that it too will be sending a spacecraft to our hot, acidic sister planet. The Venus community is absolutely elated and excited and just want and wants to just get to work and see this happen, said Venus researcher Ellen Stofen, the Smithsonian Undersecretary for Science and Research. We are we all are so hungry for data, for moving the science forward. A lot of us worked in this field since Magellan. We've had these really fundamental science questions for so long. And just to put that in perspective, Magellan's mission, and NASA's presence on Venus at least, ended on October 13th, 1994. So, you know, that's that's a bit of time that they've been waiting to go back to Venus. And so let's first talk about NASA's twin missions. They are Da Vinci Plus and Veritas. The two missions were the winners of NASA's Discovery Program. And so basically the Discovery Program asked people to pitch missions that can come in at sort of a low cost. And then they do a kind of um, they do a competition and whoever, whichever programs seem to have the most um, sort of check boxes of the things that NASA is looking for, that they are the ones that end up being funded. Now, there were other two other finalists. So the two other finalists were an Io volcano observer and a mission to Neptune's moon Triton. And so those will hopefully be eligible for future missions because both of those sound like very good plans. So each of the Venus missions will be given a cost cap of $500 million. And so this is really something that NASA is trying to promote, which is doing more missions at smaller price points. And so that is both good and... Um, it probably feels a little bit uh, underwhelming for people who study Venus because for some reason, and I will talk about, you know, obviously the reasons are pretty straightforward, but when it comes to funding missions to Venus, they just don't get the same kind of uh, funding as do missions to Mars. But of course, a lot of that is frankly because there's not a lot of chance that anyone's going to be walking on the surface of Venus in the next, I would say, 100 years, maybe. Frankly, we could get there earlier and there might be some miracle thing that happens where we're actually able to work to uh, walk on the surface of Venus in, you know, 50 or 60 years. But I I can't imagine it. Venus is extremely inhospitable. Um, it basically has eaten all of the probes that we have sent to it. Um, and so it really does not inspire the kind of dreams of walking on the surface that Mars does. So I get why it doesn't get as much money as uh, Mars research does. So Da Vinci Plus will be the first mission from Mars to sample the Venusian atmosphere since 1978, 43 years ago. The probe will study the atmosphere formed 
how the atmosphere formed and evolved and tried to determine if the planet ever had an ocean. The probe will carry a descent sphere, which will drop through the planet's thick atmosphere and take precise measurements of Nobel gases and other elements in order to help researchers model how Venus ended up with a runaway greenhouse effect, and Earth did not. And so Venus and Earth are actually a little bit closer than Mars and Earth. So Mars is actually much smaller than Earth. I think it's about two-thirds the size of Earth, whereas Venus is like, uh, I don't know exactly what the real measurements are, but Venus is much more uh, closely, uh, has a much closer diameter than to uh, Earth than Mars does. And so the sphere will also be equipped with a high-resolution camera, so excitingly, it'll be able to take pictures of unique geological features on Venus, which scientists currently refer to as tesserae, and they suspect they might be comparable to Earth's continents. Veritas, on the other hand, will map Venus's surface in order to learn more about the planet's geologic history and why, despite being, again, similar to Earth in size and distance from the sun, it developed so differently. Because really, its closer orbit can't explain the intense pressure and temperatures found on its surface. And so it's a big mystery. What happened to Venus? Why did it become this absolute hellish landscape? Why didn't it become like Earth with oceans and and continents and the ability to have life on it? Why why did that happen? We don't know. And so it's really exciting that we're going to be sending new probes out there to perhaps answer those questions. If we really understood how Venus and Earth became so different, we would be a lot closer to understanding how common or rare Earths are, Stofan said. Now, this could help us again. So what they're... what. What's being pointed out here is that it could help us understand how the habitable zone around a sun may develop. So if we look at other exoplanet uh, systems, systems with exoplanets in it, our calculations really would say that a planet of the size and closest to the sun of Venus should potentially be habitable. And yet when we look at Venus, we know that it is absolutely not habitable. And so that's a really interesting question. And, you know, I think that this is so exciting because Venus is definitely a place where there is absolutely a ton of science to be done. Mars is great. I love Mars. We're going to talk about Mars in just a minute. Mars is great. But Venus is so weird. Like, Mars is pretty straightforward. Like, it was too small to retain its, um, to retain a liquid core. And so it lost a magnetosphere. And therefore, it had its atmosphere stripped off. And it became a barren wasteland desert planet. 
that's very straightforward. That's that's easy peasy science compared to what the heck is going on on Venus. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think it's very exciting that new science is going to be done on the planet Venus. Now, of course, this isn't going to happen overnight. We're going to have to wait a while to see the results. The launches are scheduled from between 2028 and 2030. And I think it takes about three years for them to get there, I think. But it's exciting nonetheless to know that we're going to go back to this planet, which again, as I mentioned, has eaten every other probe we've sent to it. And so the early probes that we sent to it only lasted like seconds or minutes because the surface of Venus is so incredibly acidic and the pressure is incredible. And it's like, I don't even, I'm sorry, I didn't look up the statistics of how hot it is, but it's very, very, very hot. And so they only lasted minutes. And so it's very exciting that these new probes are going to have better technology. And so NASA definitely thinks that they're going to survive a lot longer than those early probes that we sent out. So that's very exciting. Now, across the Atlantic, the ESA has announced the Envision spacecraft, which is set to launch in the early 2030s. A new era in the exploration of our closest yet wildly different solar system neighbor awaits us, said Gunther Hasinger, the agency's science director, in a press release. Together with the newly announced NASA-led Venus missions, we will have an extremely comprehensive science program at this enigmatic planet well into the next decade. So Envision will be more like Veritas. It'll be an orbiter rather than a lander. It will feature instruments to study the planet's geology, internal structure, gravitational field, atmosphere, and surface composition. The ESA has been to Venus more recently than NASA with the Venus Express Orbiter, which circled the planet between 2006 and 2014. Oh, and in addition, the Japanese space agency JAXA currently has a craft which arrived in 2015, and it is studying the atmosphere of the planet. But this new suite of missions will have technology that is 25 years more advanced. And in fact, Envision also won out over another project, Theseus, the transient high-energy sky and early universe surveyor. We are thrilled to contribute to ESA's exciting new mission to investigate Venus, said Thomas Zerberschen, NASA's Associate Director for Science, in the news release. Envision leverages strengths in instruments developed by both our agencies. Combined with NASA's discovery missions to Venus, the science community will have a powerful and synergistic set of new data to understand how Venus formed and how the surface and atmosphere changed over time. So, yeah. Also, NASA is involved with uh, <laughs> Envision. So, yeah, NASA, again, I apparently this show has become halfway uh, NASA f uh, standing. And I, I don't apologize for that because sometimes you just need a good win for science. Sometimes you just need something that's unabashedly, you know, clearly just... 
this is doing amazing. These people are doing great science. There's no ethical dilemmas for the most part. There's no, uh, you know, controversy unless you're a flat earther um, who doesn't believe in space. Um, but, you know, hopefully if you're listening to this show, you are not a flat earther and you understand that space is real. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, like I said, we are going to switch over to talking about Mars for a little bit. And uh, so, yeah, Percy is finally getting down to the business of the primary mission, but not before stopping to make a great Twitter reply to the news of all the attention Venus is suddenly getting. I really want to go over to this one interesting spot and scan a rock, but I'm worried I'll look away from Twitter for five minutes and then miss Canada announcing they're sending a giant robot arm to just flail around in Venusian orbit. So yeah, whoever is running the Twitter account right now is definitely on point. Uh, kudos to that uh, social media uh, director. <laughs> okay. Getting back to the mission at hand. We are putting the rover's commissioning phase as well as the landing site in our rearview mirror and hitting the road, Jennifer Trosper, Perseverance Project Manager at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, said in a statement. And so for the next 14 weeks, Percy will explore a 1.5 square mile area within Yezero Crater, and will work towards better understanding the region's geology, assess whether the area may once have been a home to life, and if so, try to find signs of that ancient microbial life. And so in order to do this, Perseverance will locate and collect promising rocks to be picked up by a future mission and return to Earth for analysis. The rover will be taking measurements and performing technical tests in anticipation of future manned and unmanned missions to the planet. The first stop is a scenic overlook where the rover will image the ancient geological features in the crater. During this time, Percy's auto -nav navigation and sampling systems will come fully online. Percy will then be investigating two specific areas, both of which are believed to host deep and ancient exposed layers of bedrock. One area is the Greater Floor Fractured Rough, say that five times fast, <laughs> an area filled with craters. The second is called Siita, and I think I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm not sure because it means amidst the sand in Navajo. And I could not find a really good pronunciation key uh, for it. So uh, I apologize if I am mispronouncing it. According to NASA, Siata has its fair share of Mars bedrock, but is also home to ridges, layered rocks, and sand dunes. And so the rover's route has been decided, and I've actually linked to a map on the website, uh, so you can look at the uh, planned, they've got the little picture of Yezero Crater, and there's some little dotted lines, like a treasure map, it's very cute. <laughs> 
NASA mission planners have the, quote, route planned complete with optional turnoffs and labeled areas of interests and potential obstructions in our path, Kevin Hand, an astrobiologist at JPL and a co-leader of the project, explained in a statement. The Sieta portion of the exploration will be challenging due to its complex of sand dunes. So, you know, Percy has these really great, uh, you know, thick, rugged metal wheels, but sand dunes are hard. Um, it's really hard to drive around in sand dunes. So definitely going to have to be careful. And so, of course, NASA does plan to be careful. And so the plan is to navigate on the boundary between the two areas. And when an area of interest in the, uh, the Sandy region is identified to basically have Sandy to have Percy go straight for it and come back to safety as soon as possible. Because the last thing we want to do is to have the rover get bogged down in sand and be able to unable to free itself. The plan is to find at least four spots within the two areas that promise to give us the most information about the early environment and geology of the area. Starting with the crater floor fractured rough and Sieta geologic units allows us to start our exploration of Yezero at the very beginning, said Hand. This area was under at least 100 meters or 328 feet of water 3.8 billion years ago. We don't know what stories the rocks and layers, layered outcrops will tell us, but we're excited to get started. And so after exploring these regions, the rover will return to the Octavia E. Butler landing site. I just learned that that's what that's called, and I think it's pretty cool. Uh, and so the rover will have traversed between 1.6 and 3.1 miles, depending on where exactly it gets to. And it will have filled eight of the 43 sample tubes on board with Martian dirt and rocks. It'll then travel north and then west to Yezero's Delta region, which could be rich in carbonates, minerals capable of, well, preserving fossilized life forms. If, and that's a big if, there once was life on Mars, this is one of the most promising areas for discovering traces of it. So look forward to more updates as the mission continues to blossom and make new discoveries. All right, we are going to take a break now and we're going to do some PSAs and some show promos. And then we are going to come back and talk about something that is another pretty neat thing. Uh, we've been talking a lot about tardigrades recently, uh, but we're going to talk about rotifers for a minute and how they're pretty amazing as well. So do stay tuned. Join hosts Jacqueline and Mari on Alternative Lately every Sunday from 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio, WXOJ, LP, Northampton. Every week, we bring you the latest in alternative pop rock music. We'll highlight underappreciated talent and undiscovered artists, bands, and collectives you didn't know you needed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Alternative Lately. If you're looking for new current music, start here. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks... 
Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Sundays from 4 to 6. Please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the air every Sunday. See you there. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And thank you. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP 103.3, Northampton. Grow Food Northampton's Tuesday Market is a vibrant community farmer's market in downtown Northampton. Every Tuesday from 1.30 to 6.30 p.m., you can shop for locally raised and made products like veggies, flowers, meat, honey, herbal tinctures, and baked goods, all in a safe outdoor setting with live music. The Tuesday Market is accessible to all thanks to a generous Snap Match program and the state's HIP program. Grow Food Northampton's Tuesday Market is located in the plaza between Thorns Market and the parking garage in downtown Northampton. Okay, we are back, and as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about rotifers. Now, again, we've been talking about the wonderful tardigrade uh, recently, and this is another amazing microscopic animal. And so it's definitely trying to uh, challenge the tardigrade for the contender of coolest, weirdest, most interesting microscopic animal. So rotifers are tiny multicellular organisms, and that multicellular is important, that can apparently survive being frozen for at least 24,000 years. 
Yes, 24,000 years. Researchers recently thawed some rotifers found in Siberian permafrost. They found that they not only were able to be revived, but they basically immediately began to multiply. Now, uh, rotifers multiply by parthenogenesis. Basically, they, um, um, they split in half. And so they are able to very quickly reproduce. Our report is the hardest proof as of today that multicellular animals could withstand tens of thousands of years in cryptobiosis, the state of almost completely arrested metabolism, said biologist Stavs, uh, Stas Malavin of the Soil Cryology Laboratory at the Institute of Physiochemical and Biological Problems in Soil Science in Russia. Ooh, that's a mouthful. Rotifers are found throughout the world's waterways, and they're known, like the tardigrade, for being able to do things like survive freezing and dehydration, but, you know, generally in smaller increments than 24,000 years. Now, the Arctic permafrost has yielded a wide variety of treasures for researchers to examine, such as viruses, plants, moss, and previously a multicellular nematode from permafrost dated to at least 30,000 years ago. And so the rotifer recovery suggests that this was not a one-off, but a re- but has uh, shows that there's real ability for these microscopic organisms to be able to survive these incredibly long periods in a state of almost suspended animation. And so the current sample came from permafrost collected 11.5 feet below the ground at the Alizea River in northern Siberia. Ice-rich loam from the late Pleistocene, carbon dated to around 24,000 years ago, yielded the rotifer specimens. Cultures from the loam contained a number of organisms, including several rotifers, which reproduced, again, like I said, by parthenogenesis. They were confirmed to have come from the sample using genetics and comparisons to modern species. The team then took 144 of the rotifer and froze them again at around 5 degrees Fahrenheit for a week. The survivors were then compared to revived members of modern freshwater rotifers. The researchers were actually surprised to find that the ancient strains didn't seem to be significantly more freeze-resistant. The researchers found that the key to revival is freezing them slowly so that the cells can survive the formation of ice crystals with minimal damage, allowing them to survive. Though how they managed to do it for tens of thousands of years is still an open question. The researchers hope to do more research and see if even larger organisms can be frozen and revived. The takeaway is that a multicellular organism can be frozen and stored as such for thousands of years and then returned back to life, a dream of many fiction writers, Malavin said. Of course, the more complex the organism, the trickier it is to preserve it alive, frozen, and for mammals, it's currently it's not currently possible. Yet moving from a single-celled organism to an organism with a gut and brain, though microscopic, is a big step forward. 
Now, speaking of cryogenics, I was actually watching a fascinating video the other day by someone named Tom Scott, and he recounted the tale of how James Lovelock, the originator of Gaia theory and an overall highly respected and accomplished scientist and inventor, invented a microwave oven without knowing what it would become. This isn't the microwave that led to what's in your kitchen today. This one was developed for a much different purpose, to humanely revive hamsters who were the subject of cryogenics research in the 1950s. Researchers were hoping to discover ways to freeze and to contribute to the knowledge of how to store and revive organs for use. I mean, they also kind of wanted to figure out if you could do it with uh, actual humans, but we'll get to that. Now, science can sometimes seem pretty cruel, but the researchers were doing experiments that they thought would help people. Um, and, you know, we have learned a lot about cryogenics over the years. So I am not um, saying that I approve necessarily of what was happening here, but um, I think it's important research to talk about. And so the researchers were experimenting with rats and hamsters and cooling them to around 20 to 25 degrees Fahrenheit and then attempting to revive them. Initially, one of the ways that they were doing that was by applying a hot spatula to their abdomen to try and raise their core temperature very quickly. And this one, unfortunately, often left the hamsters with burns, and it wasn't even always effective. And so Dr. Lovelock actually thought that, you know, you could use a synchrotron, which was something that people were experimenting at that point, and that's what's in a microwave oven is a synchrotron. And so he thought that he could devise a... Um, a sort of, he basically created a sort of Faraday cage with a synchrotron attached and used it to create a diathermic condition in which the hamsters could be warmed without harming them further. And it actually worked in several cases um, and was, it seems, much less, uh, you know, traumatic for the hamsters than you know, having a hot spatula. Um, ugh, I hate saying it, but, you know, unfortunately, these things have happened in the past. And what's funny about this is that he actually says um, in an interview, he says he once actually uh, cooked a potato in the apparatus, but he just, you know, was not of a commercial mind. And so this ends up becoming an obscure footnote in history. And so I'll link a video uh, on the website if you'd like to know more and see a bit of an interview with the man himself, who is now over 100 years old and still quite sharp. Um, he just seems like the, a delightful person that you'd love to have a conversation with. So um, I, I highly recommend it. And um, definitely someone who's lived a full and amazing life. And so the upshot of that particular research was basically that they had to stop at hamsters because they really couldn't go any further. The anti they were using antifreeze, actually, propylene glycol, and they found that it wouldn't diffuse into tissues fast enough for animals larger than the hamsters, who already kind of were 
hamsters already have a little bit of an ability to adapt to colder weather. So, um, it just, it didn't work. And so we continue to try and find ways to, you know, make advances in cryobiotics, but, uh, let's just put it this way. There are no Futurama scenarios forthcoming anytime soon. And speaking of uh, sort of off-the-beaten-track stories, apparently nuclear bomb detectors have revealed a secret population of blue whales hiding in the Indian Ocean. Researchers have found recordings of whale song going back almost 20 years. The new population of pygmy blue whales, Balenoptera musculus brevicauda, have been named the Chagos population for a group of islands near the group's lair. The whales, which reach a maximum length of 79 feet, were discovered by researchers analyzing acoustic data collected by an underwater array meant to listen for the distinctive sound of nuclear bomb explosions. They instead heard a distinctive whale song, one that they'd never heard before. We are still discovering missing populations of the largest animals that has ever lived, senior author Tracy Rogers, a marine ecologist at the University of New South Wales in Australia, told Live Science. It's a testament to the difficulty of studying life in the ocean. Currently, about five to 10,000 blue whales exist in the Southern Hemisphere. This is down from pre-whaling populations of around 350. 50,000, according to the Center for Biological Diversity. Those that are left are often solitary and spread out across the vast ocean, making them very easy to miss. Blue whales are generally hard to find, lead author Emmanuel Leroy, a postdoctoral fellow at UNSW, explained. They were brought to the ed to the edge of extinction by industrial whaling, and they are recovering very slowly. The best way to study them is through passive acoustic monitoring, but this means that we need to have hydrophone recordings in the different parts of the ocean. And so the Indian Ocean is actually particularly sparse when it comes to acoustic arrays. So the team asked to use underwater nuclear bomb detectors deployed by the CTBTO, the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Organization, which is an international organization that monitors illegal nuclear bomb tests in the oceans. The organization gave the researchers access to their long-term data set of noises across the Indian Ocean. The CTBTO data is an important international asset, Rogers said. I think it's cool that the same system that keeps the world safe from nuclear bombs is available to researchers and allows a host of scientists, including us, to do marine science that would not be possible without such sophisticated hydroacoustic arrays. And so after sifting through the acoustic data, they realized that they'd heard a unique whale song. Blue whale songs are very simple in the way that they are they are the repetition of the same pattern, Leroy said, but each blue whale subspecies and population has a different song type. Generally, their songs are long, have a low frequency, sometimes even below that of human hearing at 20 hertz, a high intensity, and are repeated at regular intervals. But different groups have calls that are unique in duration, structure, and number of distinct sections. 
The new Chago song has three separate sections, a complex beginning followed by two more basic parts. This new whale song has been a dominant part of the soundscape in the central equatorial Indian Ocean for the past nearly 18 years, Roger said. They're confident that this is a new population and not just a few lone individuals. Now, unfortunately, sound alone can't tell us how large the population is. Visual sightings will be needed to confirm the pod, but the researchers believe that it's only a matter of time now that they know where to look. And in fact, in December 2020, a team, including Rogers and Leroy, published about another pygmy population discovered near Oman. This now takes us to five pygmy blue whale populations in the Indian Ocean, Rogers said, making the area a hotspot for the subspecies. And it wouldn't be possible without these sophisticated listening devices attempting to keep us from driving ourselves to extinction. And so I think that's really pretty cool. And so, yeah, I definitely think we need to be well aware of that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, this has been kind of an up and down, uh, (laughs) this has definitely been a bit of an up and down night for stories. Um, but I think that, You know, it just shows that there's lots of good things going on and some not so good things going on. Um, But for the most part, we are having a good time of it. We are absolutely learning brand new things. I'm super excited about Venus research because, yeah, it's really weird. (laughs) Uh, It's a great mystery and it's really interesting to try and figure out exactly what is going on. Why on earth did Venus become this incredibly intense hothouse planet when it just, it could have easily become a sister, a true sister to earth. And so, yeah. And I think that one of the other things that is kind of a theme underlying a little bit of tonight is, you know, environmental issues. And I think it's really important that we are really pushing uh, even harder these days because we are hitting some benchmarks that we didn't want to hit. And I think that as much as I like to keep things positive at all times, I think, you know, the time to be positive and just focus on, you know, the good things is swiftly coming to a point where we have to step up and start paying attention and start uh, doing our part to pressure people to do more. And um, one of the things I always remind people is that uh, the you can change the world by recycling uh, kind of idea is a little bit of a lie, not a huge lie, but, um, you know, it kind of distracts from the fact that it's really these huge corporations that are destroying the planet. And so we need to keep our focus on that and pressuring people to change the way that they are able to operate. Okay, that is all the time I have for tonight. 
Thank you so much for listening. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.